Good evening. Third shear of the week, which is, it's been an opportunity this week to learn aspects of Torah that I don't know. That's what I discovered preparing this year. And part of the, there's, there's a joy and there's a frost, there's a, an obligation that I've discovered this week. The joy is bringing together diverse perspectives that you wouldn't normally utter in the same sentence. So we think we had early in the week, I had a Rav Hirsch and a Rebbe Nachman. Right? You wouldn't necessarily bring them together ordinarily. And tonight we're also we're going to the religious Zionist world of Tal Hermon, Rav Shlomo Avina from Israel, and we're synthesizing his comments with the Slonim Rebbe in the Nesiva Shalom. So we're bringing different parts of the world together, which is fun, makes it a bit more diverse. But where it becomes ob- obligating is that eventually I, and I guess whoever else wants to take on this, this, this mission, we have to live with the values that I'm teaching all week. So like, I'm teaching these ideas as, as concepts. And well, do I actually practice the concepts that I'm teaching consistently? Or do I just know them to teach? And it's sort of animating my mind this week. So let's see where we go this week. When I spoke the first time in an Israeli context, I mentioned the idea that Mizrahi Torah, how is it different to any other Torah. So other than saying Torah, not Torah, and and speaking in English rather than Yiddish or whatever it might be, or Hebrew, how is it different in fundamentally? And I think the difference to, my, to, to me is thinking about Judaism and the Jewish people. Am Yisrael, the concept of, of a nation is how I think it differs. We're not talking about an individual Jew and their religious relationship with God as a yid, as an individual, and their own olam haba, and sort of their own spiritual destiny. But we're trying. We're speaking of peoplehood. And Rabbi Avinah points out that what we have in this week's seder, the seder of Truma, is the final link in the creation of the Jewish people. So obviously, Exodus, Egypt narrative created the nation. That was part one of the formation of the nation. Then the, gift, the receiving of the Torah gave us our mandate. In the Rabbi Soloveitch, it puts it something like, it wasn't just freedom to do nothing, it was freedom for something. It wasn't just go out and run around the desert till you find the, till you find the homeland. So we got our national purpose at Harisinai. And we lost it through the golden calf fiasco. And we get back that concept, the divine presence, the Shekhinah in our lives when we built the Mishkan. So that was really what it's about, the freedom for a purpose, but living with God as a reality in our life, something that we could pick up. So the building of the Mishkan is the final link in the formation of the Jewish people. And if that's true, then a question that we can just be thinking about in the back of our minds is to what extent, again, as a nation, are we living with freedom from whatever pharaohs are driving us crazy in our own lives? individually and nationally? Do we have a spiritual a Torah mandate? Do we live our lives by divine commandments? Are we living for a purpose? And when we're living for that purpose, are we doing it just as um, robots or automatons just performing duties? Or do we live with the sense of the Shekhinah, that presence, that, that overwhelming sense of, I feel something, there's something happening when I do a mitzvah, or am I just doing it because I've been trained to act in a certain way? That's our national death. We try to experience that. Now, when did the, when did this idea of building a Mishkan or a Beit Hamikdash first appear? When they crossed over the sea, they're singing Azir Shir. 
towards the end of the song, you, God, will bring them and plant them in the land, ultimately, in your mountain top. Then, the sanctuary of Hashem was established, but they had this moment of prophecy where, according to some explanations, they saw somehow in a vision the destiny of building of a temple in Jerusalem. So already at this stage, we already get the concept of temple, of a, of a sanctuary, not as primitive thinkers try to argue, says Rabbi, says Rabbi Avina, that we found it so hard to worship this invisible God that we needed something tangible to somehow be like everybody else. Everyone had their own little idol. They could put it on the, on the mantelpiece. I, I pray to that one. And, no, I pray to that one. Where's yours? Well, I can't show you. So they probably thought we were crazy, believing in an invisible anything. But it was always the destiny of the Jewish people, according to this approach, to have a, a structure to experience God in our lives. Now, there was a huge debate as to what, when was the command to build this Mishkan introduced. Was it before the, the sin with the golden calf? Was it after? And it links into a whole debate whether or not the Torah has a chronological timeline running through it, or does it have a pedagogical mission instead? Rashi tells us that actually building of the golden calf came first chronologically, but the Torah has an educational agenda and it wants to first put the Mishkan first and then it tells us about the story of the, gold, of the golden calf later. So what is that mission? Question one. What is that purpose? What is that message? Sorry. And number two, we've got a lot of weeks with this story now. It's weeks of this stuff. No more fun stories. No more drama. Building materials. What they denoted. How it was going to put together. Measurements. It, it gets quite tedious. And when you get to Vayakal Pekude, everything is just repeated all over again. And why didn't the Torah just say, Vayasu B'nei Yisrael Kane? One sentence, and the Jewish people did. God commanded, thank you very much. We'll just chop the book of Exodus short by a couple of chapters. And we can all get on with the service. What is the purpose of all these extra details? So Rabbi Avinah points out something quite, quite fascinating that I hadn't learned before or considered before. There are two main differences in how things were actually done from the way things were supposed to be done to how they were finally achieved. And because of the significant differences between the, the vision that Moshe presents to them and the execution in Vayakal Pekude, we need those two sedras in order to demonstrate what those differences are. So two differences points out Rav Avina. He quotes as follows. It's quoted in the Zohar. But when God commands that Moshe Rabbeinu to get this project off the ground, it says, from everybody you will take a donation, which meant everybody who was part of the nation, meaning the homogenous descendants of Yaakov, the original group, plus all the glory seekers, the schleppers that came out of Egypt, deciding, and it's quite ironic that we're in this house that has so many teachers, so many converts, Hashem led me to find this Torah specifically for this house. It's quite ironic. And all those that joined the Jewish people seemingly are in the instruction of me'ez kolish, from, from everybody, you will take a donation. But when Moshe Rabbeinu then talks to the Jewish people, that was Hashem talking to Moshe, when Moshe talks to the Jewish people, he says, take from you. 
only you, and not the Erevrath, not the Schleppers, not the Glory Seekers, not those who want to be part of our Jewish club. No, 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 from the original clan, just the original Jews, and obviously their children, but nobody else. So, what matter, what, how do things differ pre the Egal Hazav or after the Egal Hazav? Says Rav Avinah in Cain, after the sin of the golden calf, the, the mixed multitudes were distanced from joining in in building the Mishkan, the base, the base, the Mishkan or the base Hamikdash ultimately. What was Moshe thinking? What changed? And, what, and why, was the, why did things go differently? Moshe Benu sees these Erevrav as an opportunity for mass conversions. Let's just let everybody join. We'll bring them under the divine wings, bring them into the world of Torah. That's great. But Hashem had a different plan. Hashem clarified to Moshe Rabbeinu, there's a huge danger in mass conversions. Um, nonetheless, Moshe Rabbeinu's ideal desire was to elevate everybody, to bring good to the world. And he, he in a certain sense, had the wrong perspective here. It failed. The Erev Rav went back to their own idolatry. Went, and they just defaulted. The golden, the calf was worshipped as one of the deities in the ancient world. It wasn't like they had to think about what should we worship. The minute God was gone, okay, we'll just go to the next, the next uh, person, next God in the book, and we'll just go for that one because we've been in a culture for hundreds of years where that thing's worshipped. So we'll, you know, those that spoke up and had access to the to golden calves and physical structures knew, knew exactly who they were who they wanted so the area of rub went back to their previous religious ideology Chotu, they sinned and they caused others to sin now we've got no problem in individuals joining our people they're not they're, they're coming because they've got a true desire to cleave to the jewish people and our god we're, we're, we're very happy with these people. We found a great treasure. They, in fact, the, the rabbis tell us in the Gemara that actually converts are a bit of a pain in the neck because they show up all our faults. You know, they're the Baruch Hashem guys. And we're like, oh, here we go. They, they want to sing every one of the Zemiras on Shabbos. So you just want to have the Shalom and go to bed. You know, they, they've got all the passion and we've got all the, we've done this for years. However, Gior Hamoni, converting mass conversions of entire communities causes problems. Moshe Rabbeinu tried, but it was the last time that, the, that a Jewish leader tried to convert everybody with, with, with the Kedusha of the Jewish people. It became obvious to them. Sha'am Yisrael modad im tarbut goyit shlema. We just weren't able to cope. Now, it's not so much a statement about those who wanted to join, as it is also about ourselves, our ancestors. They had their baggage from the past. You can't blame them. They grew up in a culture. It was us who were so weak at the time that couldn't cope with others and their ideologies that we couldn't shut it down. Maybe perhaps we didn't have enough as a nation to say, actually, no, no, forget Golden Calf. We worship this invisible, you know, this one powerful God that controls heaven and earth. Rather than us influencing them, we were influenced by the others. So this Erev Rav managed to draw us down to Avodah Zarah and it all went wrong. Is he, is he implying it's a numbers or because they were a group? Erev Rav implies there was some form of group. I mean, Erev Rav doesn't necessarily mean that they're a group actually. 
but when it's referring to those other things, and how this huge group that a society joins. Correct. That's what, that's what you seem to be suggesting. Yeah. The way I've understood. Well, then a mass load, because we've seen it sort of in various towns, even nowadays, into states, and that there's been large groups, but not necessarily not necessarily large societies. Maybe I'm wrong there. No, no, so maybe we'll guess. So we've got modern Israel, yes, large groups of Ethiopians, for example. Large groups of them were converted for Mechumra. Although I just saw amazing on one of the, one of the news channels. You should come to Yossi's share. Yeah, my son did the share for Rosh Chodesh in November, and it was fascinating. It was all about the um, Ethiopian jury. So I just saw, also, there was an interview on Israel TV. I just saw it on, on social media with like a third or fourth generation Kess, one of their religious leaders. And he inherited it from his father and the grand. He, he knew that he was being groomed, as it were, or, or brought up to be. The, and how painful it was to come to the, the land that they dreamed of and be told that you weren't quite the real deal and you needed to go through some form of those who didn't have, who didn't have any bris had to go through a bris mila. Those who had it had to maybe go through Hatafat Dam Brit, have a drop of blood taken out. But yes, yeah, so maybe, maybe your, your language is, is an important division between groups. But, then, but that that group that came wanted. I'm sure he's making a. I'm sure he's making a political point. No, for sure he's making political points. He he does that. The last year also was very was very political in the way he saw it. So because of this this clash between the era of Rao bringing us down, Moshe Rabbeinu's desire to convert them all, but it failed. Hashem says that Moshe is no meis called ish, and then it changed to kachum because. Uh, it's not going to work. My, my original plan isn't going to work. So there were changes that are recorded by Akel Pekudeh. Mitochach, because of this, there was a new idea now. Hamikdash College. This temple, this, this edifice for God, cannot be built through everybody contributing. The Erev Rav Amufrash, they are, they are separated. Only from the, the, the original group of Jews were they able to take this donation. So, before they got the golden calf, the Mikdash was destined to be the center for the whole of humanity. Come and worship God in this, in this place. Everybody can participate. They'd all have a part in its creation and they'd all be able to benefit from the divine presence and all that that would involve in this holy place. But after the sin, the Mikdash became only for the Jewish people. The Shekhinah only settles now on the Jewish people. And it goes to the non-Jewish world. Remember, that's that wonderful medrash. They said if the Romans only knew how they benefited from the sacrifices that were offered on Sukkot, they would never have destroyed the temple because they were benefiting. But it wasn't that direct experience of please come as mass nations and join us and we'll all hold hands and dance together. It's the Jewish people in their place of worship. And then from us, it goes out sort of in secret channels flowing to the, flowing to the world. That was... Point number one that he mentions is the difference between pre and and after post the, the sin of the golden calf. The next one is who was supposed to work there. Now I feel very aggrieved. I'm a Bukhar. I'm a firstborn. They had to be redeemed, so I have retained some sort of holiness. But the tribe of Levi took my job in the temple because my ancestors messed up somewhere along the line and I got shunted out. But maybe that's also not correct. We're all we're all called pre the giving of the Torah. We were meant to be a Mamlechet Kohanim. That's all of us. There's not just one tribe. Says Rav Avinah, the Matan Torah, it says, You'll be a kingdom, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
We're all meant to be these teachers of God. Many, many years ago, wow, when I was a teenager, I was having a day off school. Did quite a lot of that when I was a teenager. It's an irony that God made me a teacher. <laughs> For a kid who didn't like school, really didn't like school, but hey, divine wisdom, uh, who knows. And I was listening to Radio 4, see the LBC or Radio 4, because I grew up in London. And one of the reform rabbis was on, probably Lionel Blue, back in the day. Radio yes, and he was speaking. It could even mean the moral maze, potentially, whatever. And he was saying, I just remember he said something that sort of went in my head and stuck there for for decades now. He spoke about why he doesn't wear any visible signs that he is a Jew, especially as he calls himself a rabbi. And he said something that was disturbing. He said, "If I'm on a bus and I'm wearing a kippah, and the bus jerks and I knock somebody, they're going to say, oh, the Jews are so annoying.'" So I'd rather not bring that upon myself. I'm not, I don't think that's a misquote. Sort of, that's, sort of, that's the memory I have of what he said. I'm lying in bed as a teenager, you know, going nuts, you idiot. You know, you could do so much good if you were a keeper. Every time you're kind and you're moral and you're this and you're that, you could actually change the narrative in a fundamental way. And that's really what our job is as the Jewish people. Mamlech es kohanim. And we, we have retained that, not in the practical sense of serving in a temple, but I think the way the world looks at our people and scrutinizes and condemns every tiny little thing that a Jew might do compared to the rest of the world, somehow there's, there's, there's a subconscious understanding that our purpose is to teach the world about Hashem and that there is something different about our people. So he says as follows, about after the sin of the, of the golden calf, it was only Aaron and his children that became the Kohanim. Before the sin... The firstborns of every tribe were, were, were destined to serve Hashem. But afterwards, just the tribe of Levi. However, in the future, when the world is at peace and everything is we're going to go back to, this, to, the, to the original ideal state where the firstborns would get their status back and they become the Kohat. They're the ones that would serve in the temple. Am Yisrael Kulo Yachzal Madrigat Kanim. Not just the firstborns, all of us will have that status. As, a, as the Pasuk says, Va'atem Kohanai Hashem Tikro. You'll be called the, the priest of Hashem. And that's that. But you want to check it out? Check out chapter 61 of Yeshaya. And you get a sense of national purpose of our people, what we're meant to be doing. Isn't that a little bit like the Korach idea, though, that aren't we all holy? No one's more holy than someone else. And he got into a lot of trouble for that. He, right. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, you go. You can, you can, you can heckle. He was completely one hundred percent right. That's why Moshe couldn't tackle him directly. That's why Moshe. That was Moshe's thing. Yeah, we are all holy. Would, <laughs> would, would it be that everyone was hmm. prophets? That was Moshe's words himself, and then he had to eat his words when it came to Korah, because it's it's true that in in theory the ideal is that, but in practice you can't have that. You have to have a leader. Sorry. No, that's perfect. And actually links in on the bit you missed before when we think about, you know, if Moshe's grand plan was his mass conversion of everybody to bring everybody under the wings of Hashem because Moshe had this vision of the potential of what we could as a, as a human race achieve. We could all be on that higher, that higher level. When we raise up and we, we, we reach higher levels of our own spirituality, then our influence will be on everybody. And there's a number of psukim that, that Avinay quotes from all over Tanakh. 
that makes the point. Let's get to the last quote here. This is from Zechariah. From those that remain, for all the Gentiles that come to Shalim, they're going to come year after year. They're all going to come to Shalim. Or you've got the Pasuk in Sephania, they're all going to grab our clothes and we're going to schlep them to the mountain of Hashem. That's, that's our destiny uh, as the people, which is why the United Nations drive everyone crazy about the Jewish people, because they can't, they can't deal with uh, where, where our people are going. Therefore, at this mini juncture, the sin of the golden calf, wasn't that it wasn't just the cause for it, and on the contrary, who gorem but often zmani litzimtsum in your it changed the plan from what it was supposed to be. Supposed to be me eight kol ish, and then it went meitchem. Supposed to be we were supposed to all of us have this role, and it all became smaller on a smaller scale. That's what. And well, what was the point? This, this building's purpose was to bring the shechina into our lives. And this was so cute. Shechina, the Hebrew, the word, how it's spelled. Shin chaf yud nun e. It's like the word achila yeshiva. It's a it's a continued verb that continues. We talk about the shechina. It's not like oh, I feel holy now. That was a good davening. Oh, I feel uplifted, and it's temporary. It's achila is eating, achila is walking as a continual action. Shechina, the same the same structure of the word says of Avina. Hashem shochen banu tamid nimtzab banu. Shechinat Hashem banu. The presence of God is with us. Gilui elokim matmid betochenu. It's always revealed. Now. We have, we're very good at, some people are very good, at sounding very sad on Tisha B'Av, pulling those very sad faces, which especially if you're on video, you've got to pull to look authentic on Tisha B'Av, because you've got to make the point you're missing it. Forget the fact that next week you're going to go to some chaster and have a smorgasbord and stuff your face and God's table's still empty, even though you cried about God's table being empty on Tisha B'Av and blah, blah, blah. How much do we want this though? Right? Not, it's not a, just a rhetorical question, just a thing. Can we cope with that? No, we, we're used to this Judaism where we can, we go into it, we go out of it, because it's hard to stay in the zone continually. What would it look like? What would our behavior, everything look different if we feel the presence of God? And when we think about nationhood, or do we really understand what that would mean for us as a nation? How, how would we go about explaining to others? And, and trying to, as I mentioned the other night in this year, one of the year, I can't remember. But this, the, oh no, it was on the Sunday, it was to a colleague, this awful interview with this 92-year-old lady from Israel who spoke about how she was in Milchamat Hashichro. She fought in the independence war and she doesn't know, for protesting in Israel. She said, we never fought for a Jewish state. We fought for a Hebrew state. I'm like, listen, it's shaking. Like, lady, you're 92 years old and you're like so distant from what we all believe is like fundamental to the very oxygen that we breathe in, 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 Jew, in Jewish life. And she, she couldn't... We don't want the rabbis and we don't want this. And she was like, really, really quite animated. And I just thought, where are we? <laughs> like, we we've, we've come home, but we're not really quite there if people are still talking that level of animosity. And how do we go about... We're talking about building a nation and building the, the, the Mishkan. How do we go about taking care of all that? The final part from of Avina is this paradox of how can the infinite fit in the finite? How does God, who is all everything, be contained in a building? Which is what Shlomo HaMelech queried as well. 
when he was building the Beis Hamikdash, like how no, the heavens can't contain you. How can this building contain you and actually be your home? And the Rambam says there's two points to the base Hamikdash. Sivanu live not Beit Habichira la Avodabo. We were commanded to build the temple in order to serve Hashem in it. The fire was burning constantly, the sacrifices were forever being offered up. And that's where we need to go on our festivals, that's where we need to go um, to gather as a nation. So, Imkain, Hakorbanot Vahaliyala Regal, Elahem, Shnei Tafkidei Hamikdash. It's both a place to serve God daily and a place of pilgrimage. Yesh Erech Mikdash Beli Korbanot. There's a value to the temple even without the sacrifices, a place to gather Jewish people together to come close to Hashem. And it's possible also to imagine a purpose of Korbanot without a Mikdash, meaning we're meeting God in this place. It's just a meeting point, a way of connecting, a place where it's all centralized and it's all there. And that, that, that experience, unlike Tfilah, which can be a completely personal experience, even you know, each individual in the same room, I liked that, I didn't like that, oh, that tune irritates me, that doesn't irritate me. And people come out, and then there's the one that comes out with nothing. So you're like, loved it, hated it, what was that? <laughs> like, oblivious to any type of experience at all. That's true individually, but nationally, we need to come together to make this place inspire us. And, and for those that came on that pilgrimage, who were very much, very earthly, because they were the farmers, they were literally working on the ground. For all that means, metaphorically and literally, they were the physical beings. The Beit HaMikdash gave us that point of contact with each other, our national identity, our connection with Hashem, our sense of purpose all came together in that place. But here there's a problem, because we're always taught that the mitzvot come from God, and God is eternal. And if God is eternal, the mitzvot, surely, therefore, as an extension of Hashem, must be eternal. So in what way is this mitzvah eternal? Once you've built the building, it's built. And assuming it doesn't get destroyed, that's it. There's no up. No, that mitzvah, you've ticked it off the list as being done. And where does it, where does it, where does it find expression in eternity, in our time? That's where you've got to play games with the, with the, the Hasidic Torahs. And you get a whole new way of thinking about this building. Rashi tells us, well, the Chazal tells us first of all, V'chein Tarasu, and so you shall do, so you shall do, not just now, says Rashi, but L'dorot. There, there is an eternal aspect to the building of the Mishkan. So Rashi tells us simply that if you lose something, then there'd be a mitzvah, you could tap into the mitzvah by replacing it. So you lose something, you know, the forks or the spoon or a bowl that was needed in the in the Mishkan or the Beis Hamikdash. So you make it again, and when you make it again, you've now done the mitzvah again. So there's the, there's the potential for the mitzvah. I guess if you're walking, if you're living in a place where there are no birds, you're never going to see a bird's nest. So you'll never have the potential to shoo away the mother bird, even though the mitzvah exists. If they never lost anything, then they'll never have the opportunity. But it exists in theory, so that gives it a, a, at least it classifies it as potentially being an eternal command that can go on forever. But then the Nasiba Shalom says, as we said in the beginning, it's a bit more complicated than saying, oh, the mitzvah happens if you lose something, because the Torah, it schleps on for five sedras, this story. The Torah, Kadosh, is Torah's Chaim, it's Torah of life. 
to teach us how we should live our lives. V'yesh lahavim, says the Rebbe, and to make it make sense how we can make sense of this Beis Hamikdash in our time. So this is where we go a little bit on, on a different frequency. There's a mitzvah lasos bekirbo mikdash lashem. There's two sanctuaries in the human being. There's the sanctuary of the intellect and the sanctuary of the heart. And these are also sanctuaries. We process our experiences through them. I guess we, we, we understand the world through emotions and through intellect. And in the absence of a physical edifice, our connection to God is either going to be, has potential to be emotional or intellectual, as in the tefillin that we put on during the day, or many other mitzvahs that connect to both the, the emotional side or the physical side. And the Rebbe Sihid and Siva Shalom, this is where he takes off in his beautiful style to bring the mitzvah down to a practical application in modern times. So bear with me, it's quite fascinating. So Vashachanti Betocham, I'll dwell in them, that's the famous Rashi, not Betochot in it but inside them and it says there's two aspects of mishkan of sanctuary mishkan hanishama which is the moach the intellect or mishkan hanefesh vaharuach which is the the arts and the humanities the spirit of what you know the, the artists are, are people of spirit and a soul that's alive and animated by the world rather than the intellect which is always going to be higher this mitzvah that we've got in this week's parasha is We have to give over to Hashem as base Both of these sanctuaries have to be devoted to God. The brain or the intellect is the sanctuary of the, of the neshama and the heart is the mishkan of the nefesh and the ruach. And this is the, this is, is the meaning of the mitzvah. And this is how it's nitzchis, it's eternal. And it applies to everybody. As we've explained in another place, the part of the mitzvah that relates to the, the soul, who is eternal and always applies. We're obligated to purify ourselves and to make ourselves ready for Hashem open ourselves up both to, a, to, to an emotional experience with Hashem. I mean, the Rabavichas have a whole ideology in Tanya of how the intellect has to dominate the emotions, has to control the emotions, which is quite a, a challenging thing. Most people say, oh, I'm too, I can't think now. I'm, I'm all wound up. Come back to me later. And then you have a fight. Oh, sorry, I was feeling a bit overwhelmed. So you're overwhelmed. You weren't being intellectual. Somehow we have to control, the higher level has to control the lower level of our identity, which is, I guess, something you can, we can work on forever. I suppose, unless anyone's got any tips to know how to do it now, we can work on it. It could be one thing we can, we can work on. So he asks the following little question, nine more minutes. How do we do this? We're physical beings. It's going to go wax lyrical now. With dust and ashes. That God and the heavens can't contain him. And God wants to live in me? Like if, the, if, the, if the world can't contain God, how can mortal man, with all our limitations and all our physicality and our drives and our desires, how can we make space for God in there and in our hearts 
it seems to be a little bit too much for us. Seems a very nice concept, but a little bit overwhelming and perhaps not very practical. So he says, livnos kol Yehudi as base Hamigdash Shalom. So how do we do it? He kedichtiv v'yikhuli truma. Take for me at the beginning of this week, etc. Take a donation. Me'es kol ish asher yidvenu libo from everyone whose heart motivates them. Shat truma me'es kol ish he asher yidvenu libo. How do you get? How do you have to? Your heart motivates you to want to connect. This is so beautiful. We all have different areas in our lives that our hearts desire. Someone go after chesed, some after learning, some after davening, some after some whatever, all the different things in life, all the good things. We all seem to specialize in an area or desire to specialize or to connect with a certain area of connecting with Hashem. And that's a personal thing. Each individual and what are their issues. So what's your donation? It's me'es kol ish. Asher yidvenu libo. Shiyim sar as hadava hahu. The thing that you desire most, give it over to Hashem. Where you can become the expert, where you can master something. And that's how you build your own personal base on Mikdosh. Do it really well. Someone that wants to do chesed, do it to the nth degree. Don't come back, don't cut corners. Do it because it's as it's, it's a divine command to do chesed. Or if you get, oh, as you're going to learn, I said this last night from Yav Yaakov Meir Shechter, one of the big breaths of a mashpim. It says um, the the chap, first pasuk in chapter 119 talks about being tomim, being being wholehearted, and he explains based on Rabbi Nachman that tomim means here. Don't worry how you feel in the moment. If, you, if, if Torah is important to you, learn it whenever. Don't, don't forget how you feel, forget your time, just get on and do the thing. And that's that's what it means to have a yoke of, of Torah on your back. That, that, that's the continuity. And the same thing here in any other area. It's what you desire the most, give that over to Hashem. As it says in, in, in the Sfarim, Shakol Yehudi Yarad Olam, each individual Jew came to this world, to fix the things that are individual to him. That's why neighbors are wonderful things, but neighbors get us off our, our, our individual missions because we watch what everyone else is doing. Ah, oh, I should be doing that. No, who said you should be doing that? The people that can that can cook very quickly and want to work in a soup kitchen, let them do that. And if you could do something else, sit by a hospital bed because they couldn't deal with the actual person because it's too personal. And if you can go and get someone company in a hospital room, then you go and do you be the social person and let the people do the cooking who don't like the social thing but are fine behind the scenes. And we get so distracted sometimes by what society... You don't, you don't get the plaque for being in the hospital because no one knows you're there. But you might get the award of being in the soup kitchen for so, so many hours a week. So we get we forget that that was personal to them. Every time in history, things change. Or as you go through life, you, you, your, your own your mission changes as you over as you deal with one level. You go up to a higher level. You can progress. When you give over this thing, you desire right now the very most and you give that over to God and you dedicate that to Hashem. That's how you're building in your own being, your own sense of personhood, that Mishkan, that place for Hashem. Now, when can we do that most? On Shabbos. If you want to 
tap in to holiness on Shabbos and to make this beautiful edifice inside us and to, to have this base Hamikdash experience, which is what? Remember, that I'm if we go back to the first idea, the base Hamikdash is part three of the creation of the Jewish people. So to me, it says you're building a base Hamikdash. That means you've built your sense of freedom for a purpose. You know what your purpose and how to live it. And then you live all of that in the base Hamikdash where the Shekhinah is. It's not, it's, not, it's not separate from Torah. It's not separate from that sense of feeling emancipated from the burdens of, of life. It's knowing who we are as free people, freely choosing the mitzvot and wanting to connect to Hashem. We can do that on Shabbos. You have to then limit. Shabbos has to be a Shabbos and it can't just be a, a day where it's not weekday, but it's not Shabbos. Shabbos has to be really Shabbos. We have to push away the weekday stuff and allow that holiness to, to enter our lives. Anything else, any other spiritual spirituality you want to bring into your life, then you've got to get rid of the physical, make space. You have to make space for Shabbos, not just stop. And that's something completely, that's a whole other shit. You know, try, trying to make space for Shabbos because making space for Shabbos can be really debilitating if one's identity is purely based on what you do from Sunday to Friday. If you've got no other identity, then when that's no longer being acted on, you're nobody all of a sudden. And then Shabbos is a day where you wonder who the heck you are. You've lost, you have no sense of anything. You, you, you are a nobody and no, one, no human alive wants to feel like a nobody. So then Shabbos becomes... Unpleasant. This is the this is how he explains here the eternal nature of it. We have to sanctify ourselves. Till so we've made that space inside of us for the holiness for Hashem in our lives. That God can then enter our hearts and enter our lives. And how we do that? That's going to take it one stage further in the homes that we try to build and the nature of those homes that we want to try and try and create for ourselves we can sanctify our homes that we bring holiness into our homes so will the level our success level be with bringing that god will want to dwell in our homes and how we explain that and how we do that, that's that's a challenge I think everybody tries to struggle with. When you've got the world outside knocking on our window saying, let me in, let me in. And the only way we can bring God into our lives is if we say, no, just wait outside and we'll take the good and get rid of the rubbish. And that, that, that bureau, that way of clarifying what's kosher, what's not, is, is what I think... This chat is what I think life's about, trying to clarify. It's easy to run away and shut the ghetto doors and say everything stay outside. It's a much harder, but much more profound experience when you can take from the very best of what the world can provide us and get rid of the dross, take the beautiful side and use that to enhance our service of Hashem. And when we make, you know, the obvious prayer at the end of a parish on the Mishkan would obviously be to pray for the third Beis HaMikdash, but not just as a building, but to pray that the nation should be ready for it, just like there were stages before we got the Mishkan, and our nation has to go through stages again till we can get the Bet Hamidash. And I think we've got a lot to do. Thank you very much. Thank you.